somebody's going to come in, probably going to be brand new to your organization with no pony in the race. And they're going to be like, why do we have four different monitoring solutions? Mm-hmm. And then somebody, maybe somebody who's still around from the time all these decisions were being made, they were like, well, there was a team that needed this particular feature set and they really felt strongly about it. They made a case for it and we approved it. And then somebody else is going to be like, well, that's before my time. I can go back to the team and see if anybody remembers why we picked this thing. And then somebody will be like, I have zero clue. I don't know. I've been asking the same question, right? <laughs> and then all of a sudden that starts a whole new cycle. <laughs> Right? Of people saying, well, we must consolidate all these things. Everybody now starts running around trying to figure out why do we do these things again? Now we need to make a decision on which of these products to pick. So the business starts to drive the technology decisions as it should have in the first place. But now that starts to bring in like all the cowboys running off and like, well, it's time to lasso these back in, try to bring these things back in. Right. So now we, we need to bring order to the chaos. Big thanks to our partners, Linode Fastly and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Get $100 in credit at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by Teleport. Teleport lets engineers operate as if all cloud computing resources they have access to are in the same room with them. SSO allows discovery and instant access to all layers of your tech stack behind NAT, across clouds, data centers, or on the edge. I have Ev Consovoy here with me, co-founder and CEO of Teleport. Ev, help me understand industry best practices and how Teleport Access Plane gives engineers unified access in the most secure way possible. So the industry best practice for remote access means that the access needs to be identity-based, which means that you're logging in as yourself, you're not sharing credentials from anybody, and the best way to implement this is uh, certificates. It also means that you need to have unified audit for all the different actions. With all these difficulties that you would experience configuring everything you have, every server, every cluster, with certificate-based authentication and authorization, that's the state of the world today. You have to do it. But if you are using Teleport, that creates a single end point. It's a multi-protocol proxy that natively speaks all of these different protocols that you're using. It makes you to go through SSO single sign-on, and then it transparently allows you to receive certificates for all of your cloud resources. And the beauty of certificates is that they have your identity encoded, and they also expire. So when the day is over, you go home, the your access is automatically revoked. And that's what Teleport allows you to do. So it allows engineers to enjoy the superpowers of accessing all of cloud computing resources as if they were in the same room with them. That's why it's called teleport. And at the same time, when the day is over, the access is automatically revoked. That's the beauty of teleport. All right. You can try teleport today in the cloud, self-hosted or open source. Head to goteleport.com to learn more and get started. Again, goteleport.com. Go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. Join in on the conversation during our live recordings. On Tuesdays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern, we hang out in the Go Time FM channel of Go for Slack and listen along at youtube.com slash changelog. Okay, here we go. Take it away, Chris.
Welcome to Go Time. I'm your host, Chris Brando, and today we're going to be doing something uh, a little bit different than what we uh, usually do. This is the first episode in a, in a mini series that we're going to be doing on maintenance, and today's topic is build versus buy. And I'm joined today by Angelica Hill. Hello, Angelica. How are you? I'm very well. Amazing. And I'm also joined by Johnny Borsico. How are you doing today, Johnny? Hello, I am doing quite well, actually. Perfect. All right, so since like no one here needs introductions, we're all hosts on this show, <laughs> uh, I think we can just jump right into it. So the, the idea behind this mini-series, I was thinking the other day about you know how important maintenance is for our lives, for our software, for everything we do, but you know in our industry, we tend to talk a lot about innovation, about new things, about greenfield projects, and we rarely talk about maintenance. So that's the kind of framing for today's episode, you know, talk about things that we've talked about before, but with an eye toward maintenance. And then we're, we're starting with, you know, that classic build versus buy debate. So let's just, you know, start with setting the scene. Uh, what does build versus buy mean to you? Johnny, how about you start? Build versus buy. Well, to me, that's a sort of a layered question, right? Because you're going to be asking yourself this question almost at every layer of uh, whatever technology um, stack or software or product, whatever it is you're building. Right? You're going to be asking yourself that like all the way down the stack, right? So you can start with, well, we are a company that uh, focuses on technology X, right? Um, should our focus be only on technology X? And whenever we need technology, you know, A, B, and C, we go out and buy those as opposed to building those things because those are not the things that make us money. So that's sort of the, the question you're asking yourself right then and there. And then it can go as low as a developer making a decision on a, a dependency or a library they want to bring into their project, right? We don't often realize that, but when you bring in a dependency into your project, you are in effect buying that with your time. It might be free and open source and that's all good, but you are paying for that in some way, right? Because you know it's going to be the maintenance of that thing if for whatever reason it breaks or maybe the uh, maintainer decides they want to go do something else and now you've inherited right the maintenance the cost of actually having that dependency in your software so it, it, it's a question you're going to be asking yourself you know or you should be asking yourself really throughout the life cycle of whatever it is you're working on yeah yeah definitely agree with that angelica what does build versus buy mean to you I mean, I might be giving away my my product mind here, but as soon as you say build versus buy, I just get dollar signs in my brain. <laughs> <laughs> but I think Johnny touched on something that is just kind of quintessential to the decision you make when you're thinking build versus buy, which is cost. Whether that be, as first came to my mind, your dollar signs, or cost in terms of your engineer's time, whether that be building that solution, whether it be maintaining it, whether it be going back and forth between a third party vendor. I think one of the things that I spend a lot of time thinking about when we're making decisions on a build versus buy is, does this third party solution, does this external dependency, this open source project, as Johnny chatted about, have maintainers, have people we can go to? Do they have an on-call engineer if something goes wrong? Are they going to be a partner that we want to be tied to in terms of having confidence in that solution in the same way we would have confidence in a built solution where we would you know, be putting our faith in our engineering team, in our colleagues, being able to help us out if things go wrong? Yeah, no, I, I like that perspective too. You know, a little bit more on the on the side of the business, but you know, I mean, equally important. We have to consider more than just the technical aspects of building software when we create something. We we also have to think about the knock on effects because you know that 
contributes to maintainability at the end of the day, right? It's not just about like, can we maintain the actual code that exists, but like, does the organization have the bandwidth from a product perspective or a project management perspective to actually maintain the project from that perspective, right? If you don't have enough product people to maintain the features you're building, well, that's a problem. So that has to be kind of brought into the build versus buy equation. So I kind of want to want to talk about like the initial stages of creating a new project you know, because there's obviously a difference between talking about building versus buying for something brand new that you're just starting doing versus something you already have around. So I guess like from that initial perspective, you know, you have a new project, where do you tend to fall on that that line of build versus buying? And I guess what nuance would you also add to that perspective? I mean, for me personally, it all starts with the requirements, the technical requirements. What are we going to expect from this thing? in the short term, in the immediate, but also thinking long term, like eventually, is this something that we want to be able to scale up? Is this something that we're going to expect to handle a large amount of load, like really making sure that when making the decision and going in from day one, knowing exactly what your expectations are going to be, because then you're going to have a clear like shopping list to go through and think, okay, this external, this buy option, is it going to fulfill all my use cases? If no, then that's a clear, like, that's not the right solution. If yes, great. That gives you kind of space to talk more about the things that aren't as essential that might be added. There's a, there's a sort of default stance you can sort of take with build versus buy. Again, so speaking from the point of view of someone who has to, depending what stage you're at and really what environment you're in, what company are you working for? Or, you know, is it is it a startup? Is it a large enterprise? There are some constraints that uh, you're going to have to factor in, uh, right? Be they regulatory or compliance or SOC or any of those laundry lists of things, right? Depending on the industry you're in, right? You might have the ability to do certain things. You might be able to use something off the shelf, whether it be something you pay for or something that's open source and maintained by a larger community. Default sense is to always buy, right? It's going to be contextual. But I think if you are building a product, you can sort of, um, depending on what your circumstances are, you can take a default sense and say, you know what? We are in the business of making web applications for, say, uh, shoemakers, right? So perhaps you're not in a position to go build a database, right, specifically tailored for shoemaking apps, right? So trying to go build, right, custom tailored database to solve that particular problem, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot because you're really wasting your engineering resources and talent and, and money. You're kind of wasting your effort and time, specifically for a startup. You know, time is against you, right? Maybe you're running out of money or whatever it is. You need to get, you know, product market fit quickly and start to generate revenue, whatever the case may be. Then really you're focused on, okay, what is the focus that we need to have? What is the discipline that we need to have, right, to get to profitability, right? If you're a larger organization, then it's not the money, right, that's sort of driving that decision. It's more of, a, okay, all these other things I mentioned previously, right? Well, what are the constraints? What are the requirements we have, right, on this organization that perhaps limit our choices of, you know, on the build versus buy thing? You'll find that in a lot of large corporations, and if you've worked for one, you will know that a lot of times you end up having sort of this not invented here sort of syndrome. You might know what I'm talking about, right? Whereby, yes, we could go uh, pick up this, this product from this startup, which is solely focused on delivering this particular kind of product. That's what we need, right, internally. But because of reason X, Y, and Z, be it architecture, be it compliance, be it whatever, we can't simply buy this and integrate it, right? We'd be better off sort of building something close to it, which is never really going to be as good as the off-the-shelf solution, but 
those constraints kind of force you into the sort of a, let's put some things together, let's glue some things together so we can arrive at a solution. So it's never cut and dry, but it's more of a, a contextual. Yeah, I definitely feel like big companies tend to fall on the extremes because I've worked at some big companies that also do the opposite, where it's like as soon as you need something, it's like, okay, let's go find a vendor to provide this for us. Let's go you know, find someone that has already built it. There's no way that someone hasn't built this thing for which you know, I, I, I do think it's always a, a trade-off of like, is the thing that you're trying to acquire or the thing that you want to do? Do you have the requirements set out for it? You know, going back to what Angelica said, because I think that's a crucial aspect of this conversation as well. So I feel like whenever I've been in some of these conversations, especially when it's about commodity components, right? As you mentioned, like a database or something like that, either it jumps out as like, of course we can't build our own database, or we start talking about all of the options that are out there without really coming back to what is it that we're trying to do at the end of the day? What problem are we trying to solve? And I think, you know, talking about commodity components as well is that the area where this conversation sits most of the time, because I think, you know, there's obviously the core part of your business is something that you are going to build, at least in the software world, because that's why we're here. That's what we're doing. We are trying to build a product to sell to people. So we're not going to, in most cases, buy our main thing. But, you know, when it comes to building something that is commodity, there there has to be a line. There has to be a point at which it starts making sense, right? You know, we talk about a two-person startup. Doesn't really make sense to build your own database. But then you get to the size of a company like Google or Amazon. And then, you know, they have lots of databases that are built internally and that people use. And no one kind of bats an eye at that sort of thing. In fact, sometimes we expect that sort of thing to happen. So I would kind of pose to each of you, where do you think that that line is? Like, at what point should an organization start considering building something that is a commodity that is available out there, but that they could perhaps get more benefit from if they built it themselves versus just buying or acquiring it from somewhere else? My view is you should always be thinking about building and like the decision of build versus buy in anything you're building. To go to your point around kind of if you have something that is quote unquote like a commodity, it's essential, it's something that isn't anything specifically unique to your use case, your problem. I would also say in my experience, there are instances your company will get to a certain size and we've had this at the New York Times where there is not a buy option for the scale and the load and the amount of data or users, for example, when it comes to breaking news that can support your needs. So you have to build and you have to build something that is unique to you, although it is, quote unquote, a a non-unique use case. So I think if you're clever and you have the time to do that kind of research, there's a big point here is if you're on a deadline, if you're really pushed against the clock, you might not have the time to really go granular and do like a two-week spike investigation on like this, what would happen if we built versus buy. But if you do, I would strongly encourage to always think through your options before making that decision. But I would say there are definitely for forcing mechanisms. And I would say, to go to your point, Chris, I think you're right in that big companies often, especially when they're on time crunch, will push for buy because they want their engineers working on like new stuff, unique stuff, things that aren't in their minds, not unique, if that makes sense. But Johnny, I'll uh, pass over to you for your strong opinions. Well, I say strong because I think over the years, my stance on that has changed. I think in my earlier days as an engineer, I was basically always sort of gung-ho for building because I always found the problem spaces that I happen to be in to be uh, interesting and I always wanted to sort of build stuff. And even if there was something out there, I'd look at it, I'm like, ah, I can do better, <laughs> all right? Like, I kind of like letting myself get carried away, you know, oh, 
Twitter, that's just nothing but a, you know, ever scrolling, you know, feed. You can refresh things in the background. That's fine. You can build that in a weekend, right? Like, obviously, as time goes on and, and you grow as an engineer, you realize, okay, there's more to a product than, than just the engineering of it. There's, there's always more. A lot of things you don't know, you don't know. So as you mature as an engineer, you sort of realize, okay, there are always constraints. There are always trade-offs, right? What am I trading off? So to your question, like, when is that threshold? Well, for me, I'm going to borrow a term from sort of the cloud industry and, says, and basically says, as long as you have things that are considered un- undifferentiated, like commodity, right? Like, I'm not going to build a data center or invest in a data center to host my SaaS web app, whatever, right? It just doesn't make sense to do that, right? But if I'm in the business of actually building highly customized servers and hardware for cloud hosting businesses, then yes, maybe I do need my own data center to do these things, right? So because that is in the line of business, that is the business you're in, right? As long as whatever it is you're evaluating does not lead directly to revenue generation, right? Or in some cases, cost reduction, right? For the service that you're providing, right? Then for me, it's it's a no-brainer. It's not even worth considering because... I can go find something out there that's going to do perhaps not 100% of everything I need. But, you know, again, I'm using the 80-20 rule when I'm talking about this here. What is the thing that gets me like, close enough, right? And if I need to, you know, stitch together some extra things and whatever, maybe there's some, some things that doesn't do quite well. And maybe I, I want to dedicate that basically an extra 10% of engineering time and effort to sort of get there, right? No solution is going to be just right. And even when we build our own, we find out later on that, oh, the requirements changed, as they often do. The criteria that we were using, you know, that we decided to go build this thing on, they've changed a little bit, or the business doesn't care about this as much, or, you know, we don't need, you know, all these nines for reliability. Maybe we can get away with, you know, four nines for, for this thing, because, you know, our customers are business hours only, you know, and there's a lot of things you're going to factor in to that decision. But I think for me, like a really cut and dry rule, whatever it is that I'm thinking of investing in, does this contribute directly to the revenue or to the cost reduction of the service I'm trying to render. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think, although I think like maybe to pay a little bit of devil advocate or to kind of take like a slightly different view on this as well. I wonder if a lot of the time when we're considering the buy option, we don't take into account enough how much it takes to actually vet a solution that we want to buy. Like, you know, not just like, oh, there's a solution out there that does this thing, but like, is this company going to be around for as long as we're going to be using this thing that we buy? Are they going to actually be able to sustain the type of demand that we have? I know there's a number of SaaS products that I've seen in the past and it, you know, all of a sudden you start looking at the company and it's just like one dude in his basement that's maintaining it. And it's like, oh, well, we found something that perfectly does what we want. But that seems like a major risk for us to actually take that on and use that. Because if that dude like decides he doesn't want to do this anymore or, or something happens to them, now we have to figure out either another solution that we want to buy or figure out something that we're going to build. And it might happen in a very inopportune time. So I wonder, is, is that something that like you think a lot of companies are already accounting for? Or is this kind of like a little bit of a blind space when it, you know, comes to like the maintenance of the things that we wind up buying. I mean, I certainly think that if you're going to one guy in a basement, you should that should cross your mind as something to check in on. <laughs> I think that's a great question. I, I would like to say everyone thinks that through, but I, I don't think they always do. But I think what you're touching on, I think both Chris, you've touched on this in terms of relying on dependencies that might not be there in the long run. And Johnny, you've touched on this in terms of like people, even if it's a big company changing things, maybe they, you know, fix a bug that you're unaware of that you were relying on, or they change their ethos and or the way that they want you to use their product. 
And I think that's another interesting area to explore is around the fact that you're giving up control when you're relying on these external bought solutions in a way that perhaps you should really bring into the equation in a big way because you are then relying on external people to make sure that your infrastructure is working the way you want to. You're, you're giving away a facet of your overall technology that you could control and you could have complete ownership of. So I think certainly in my mind, which goes to kind of evaluating what you eventually wanted to do, certainly when I'm having conversations around like, should we be building this? Should we be buying it? Is this something that it's really important that we have full control over, full ownership of? Are we going to want to have the flexibility to tweak it, to change it, to innovate on it at a pace, one, that is going to be sustainable? We don't want to be like pinging a ticket every two seconds to our external dependencies and following up on PRs, following up on like, hey, have you done this feature update, which we put in three years ago that we really need? Because then you eventually, which personal experience we've got to get to a point where like this was a great solution but they're just so slow they just don't get back to us and we actually should just build this ourselves even though it's more time at the front when we have full ownership we're going to be able to iterate faster we're going to be able to have more personalization we're going to be able to just completely be in control i see you smiling johnny (laughs) well first of all let me preface my thought here is that Obviously, um, the different experiences that we each have when it comes to, you know, this whole build versus buy thing is half the time is completely sort of uh, by luck, right? So you might be in an organization where they favor a particular approach over another. Uh, you might be in the same, same organization where there's been a changing of the guard and the new leadership feels a different way than the previous leadership, right? So over the years, when I, when I see people with strong opinions internally, and sometimes I kind of have a chuckle because I'm like, Ah, uh, you haven't been through uh, this rodeo yet, have you? Because um, <laughs> like, I see this sea change, you know, happen like so often. Again, it's all about trade-offs. So usually what I do, and this actually leads right into sort of a technique I like to use when I'm trying to make the decision of build versus buy, right? So if I'm managing an engineering team and we're trying to decide whether, okay, should we build our own search tool or should we find something as open source tool or go with some of the facto tooling out there, maybe Elasticsearch, maybe some popular open source project that we know is going to be maintained and, and et cetera, et cetera. So the, the vetting process, right, to decide one, one way or the other, right, we document that. We create a decision record, meaning that, okay, at this particular point in time, this is the problem we're solving, right? These are the constraints we have. These are the trade-offs we're willing to make. These are the things we're willing to budge on. These are the things we're not willing to budge on, right? So once you've laid that groundwork, right, and everybody agrees, okay, now you start to, to you can't 100% get there, but you start to sort of remove the sort of uh, the emotion, the feeling out of the decision, right? Because I might have, you know, I'm a gopher after all, I might have a sort of a penchant for using Blevy, right, as sort of an open source, you know, search tool. Enumerated list of the benefits, right? You know, I don't need to have, you know, massive servers, it's fast, it's written in Go, you know, I can understand the code, what, what's going on back there. And if I have to, I can reach out to, to Marty and say, hey, Marty, we're having this, this particular problem. Have you encountered this before? Have you had customers who've had this particular issue. Like I have this sort of an intimate sort of relationship with that ecosystem, with the maintainers of the project, with the project itself that I don't have with say Elasticsearch, right? I may already be biased towards picking a particular solution because I'm of my familiarity with it, right? But if we all agree, whoever's part of the decision-making, if we all agree, well, these are the things that we care about, right? Let's agree, right? That foundational, you know, thing, let's agree that these are the things that we care about. Now, 
these are the options. I can throw Levy in there as an example. Somebody else can throw Elasticsearch. Somebody can throw a hosted solution like Algolia, right? Somebody can throw whatever it is, right? And then now we start evaluating things based on that criteria, right? That we all agreed were the things that we cared about, right? So that when that decision gets made, right? And we decide to invest into building our own or invest into bringing in a third-party dependency and being on the hook for basically, you know, keeping it going. Should the project be abandoned or should it not be moving as fast enough, you know, as Angelica saying that, you know, we're bringing it, forking it, bringing it in-house to do these things, you know, we, we're taking on that call. We're going in with both eyes open. So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about sort of a, why you may have a default stance, right? And that default is going to change because people change. The same people who care about this thing today are going to be you know, not caring about as hard about it, right? Tomorrow, right? New people coming into the picture are going to have different opinions, right? They may, they too may have their bias. I'm like, hey, I want to use, you know, Postgres. Postgres is, you know, the cuckoo's nest and I want to use it for everything, right? Including, you know, full text searching. Okay. And there are some pros and cons to that approach as well. Yeah, like throw that in there, right? Let's let's look at that too, right? By the end, when the decision is made, right, you have a decision record that says, okay, these are all the things we evaluated. And based on this evaluation, which we try to make as objective as possible, this is the solution we ended up going with. So that when the new guard comes in, the new set of developers or whatever it is, hopefully, that doesn't always happen, but hopefully, rather than saying, ah, who built this thing? Like, were they like, this was stupid decisions. You've seen it. You've heard it, right? You know, new people come in, you know, they come in, oh, yeah, I'm going to fix all the things, right? You know, you we probably work with some of the developers you know, over the years, right? They come in, uh, full of ego, full of bravado, and uh, yeah, I'm going to fix all the things. You're like, who made this decision? Why are you using, using this library? Why are you using this language? Whatever it is, right? But that's for a different podcast episode. But yeah, it, hopefully, right, with that knowledge in hand, if they look at it, they can say, okay, these were the constraints then. Perhaps today, we're working under a different set of constraints, Okay. Now, hopefully they do a similar exercise to find what to transition to, whether it's be in-house, off the shelf, whatever it is. Right. But again, it's removing that sort of, oh, I like this thing because I like that thing kind of thing, trying to make it as objective as possible. It's not hundred percent, but you know, trying to get there is really what matters most. This episode is brought to you by our friends at LaunchDarkly. Feature management for the modern enterprise. Power testing in production at any scale. Here's how it works. LaunchDarkly enables development teams and operation teams to deploy code at any time, even if a feature isn't ready to release to users. Wrapping code with feature flags gives you the safety to test new features and infrastructure in your production environments without impacting the wrong end users. When you're ready to release more widely, update the flag status and the changes are made instantaneously by the real-time streaming architecture. Eliminate risk, deliver value, get started for free today at LaunchDarkly.com. Again, LaunchDarkly.com. I feel like there's this impulse, at least some of the companies I've been at, where, uh, you know, we'll be on one side of this spectrum, you know, the pendulum will have like swung to one direction where it's like, okay, we're going to buy everything, we're going to build everything. And then like a new regime does come in and all of a sudden it's everything that was there before is crap. We need to do everything different. And we kind of swing the pendulum all the way to the other side. And then it's kind of just as bad. And I've always had the position that it's like, kind of want to be in the center. You want to be like, 
oscillating in the center, right? You don't want to get stale. You don't want to get stagnant and stuck in the same place. But like swinging to the edges of like, we must buy everything versus we must build anything never seems to be like a good position to be in. I feel like you were going to say something, Angelica. No, I was. I mean, I, I actually, two things came to mind as you were chatting. One was to your point, Johnny, when you're making this kind of, I guess, decision tree, this, this record, how do you consider the rest of the company and or the other dependencies you have, i.e. if you get to a point where you have, I don't know, six vendors that you're using to fulfill one use case because they all give you a little different feature, that feels to me slightly problematic. However, you assess those individual capabilities you required and you you know came to the conclusion that this buy solution was the best and you know less time consuming and gave you what you needed however i wonder how you bring in that broader ecosystem whether it be the company ethos or just on a team one team if they have a broad enough product scope is there a point where you say oh actually we've bought too much we actually should stop buying even if there is something that is easy to bring in because then we just have to keep track of all these different <laughs> bought solutions. I wonder if there's a tipping point in your mind. The bigger the the organization, the more teams, the more layers, right? The larger the body of people um, who may have influence over these decisions, the higher the likelihood that you'll have like sort of redundant products um, mm -hmm. that kind of do similar things, but each one does them differently enough that this particular team was able to justify to their boss, to their chain, that, uh, oh yeah, making this investment will allow us, our team, Team X, to move you know, um, twice as fast or to be able to operate you know, X set of services better because this product X from vendor Y offers us you know, all the illities that we're looking for, right? Uh, and offers us the ability to observe and to do this and that. So in the case of, you know, say monitoring or something, right? Um, and because there's tons of monitoring solutions out there, that we, that's an easy one to sort of pick up. So you'll find that eventually, right? Eventually, somebody's going to come in, right? Usually two, three levels, you know, above sort of the team manager, right? Maybe it's going to be a director or VP or whatever, right? Somebody's going to come in, probably going to be brand new to the organization. Right? They're going to come in and say, with no pony in the race, so to speak, right? They're going to come in and they're going to be like, why do we have four different monitoring solutions? Mm -hmm. And then... Somebody, maybe somebody who's still around from the time all these decisions were being made, they were like, well, there was a team that needed this particular feature set and they really felt strongly about it. They made a case for it and we approved it. And then somebody else is going to be like, well, I don't know, that's, that's before my time. I can go back to the, to the team and see if anybody remembers why we picked this thing. And then somebody will be like, I have zero clue. I don't know. I've been asking the same question, right? <laughs> and then all of a sudden, that starts a whole new cycle right? of people saying, well, now we, we must consolidate all these things. And everybody you know, is now starts running around trying to figure out, okay, why do we do these things again? Now, if we try to now, now we need to make a decision on which of these products to pick. We don't want to be paying you know, like four different vendors for the same thing, more or less, right? So the business starts to drive right, the technology decisions as it should have in the first place, right? But now that starts to bring in like all the cowboys running off and like, well, it's time to lasso these back in, try to bring these things back in, right? So now we, we're basically, we need to bring order to the chaos, right? Or so mm -hmm. we think, right? And then what's going to happen, you know, at some point, you know, that same VP who was asking the questions, people are going to be making cases. Oh yeah, this product is, is, is what we need, is what we need. And then, you know, like four, four or five, six years down the line, you find yourself creeping back towards the same thing because needs have changed, technology has changed, you know, things, people, you get the idea, right? Which is why it, it's so important to know exactly what problem are you trying to solve 
and to have the courage to go back to that decision record or whatever artifact you want to use to track, right, the things that were influencing the decision we're making, to go back to that at some point and say, hey, is this product still meeting our needs? Is this approach still meeting our needs? It's the fact that we've been tracking developer hours going into maintaining a homegrown solution. We could have bought this product twice over. Heck, we could have acquired the company had we just you know, looked at the cost of this thing, right? Because if you're not tracking that, right, you're kind of, sometimes you know, people don't track costs and hours and things because you kind of have to reconcile that with reality. Like, oh, ooh, this is <laughs> ah, this is kind of embarrassing. We don't want to do that, right? So again, if we're being honest with ourselves, like eventually we do have to sort of come with that. You know, that reckoning has to come, right? You have to be like, okay, this isn't what we spent. This is all the things that we're doing. Like, what are we making this decision on? It's okay to make the wrong decision as long as you have the things you were looking at. It says, okay, well, if I'm, you know, this is the criteria that I'm using to make that decision. And it's okay to, to get it wrong, right? But at least you have some documentation that says, these were the things I played when I made that decision. And it's easy to say to the VP, hey, this is what I went into making that decision. But now if they want to change the constraints, they want to change the parameters, it's all good. It's all good. Company has money you throw at it, fine. It's all good. But you know, everybody has a common understanding of why we pick you know, all these vendors. So knowing that there's all this flexibility and things are going to change inevitably, you might pick to do a, a bought solution and then you might three, four years later, or honestly, maybe a year later, have like, no, there's this other bought solution that the company wants you to do, or even decide we should build this. I wonder, I'd actually be interested in Chris to hear your opinion on this. Does it change the way you as developers approach building that solution, i.e. utilizing that dependency? Like, does it mean that you would approach writing your code differently to be, I guess, dependency agnostic or flexible enough that if it comes to the case where you have to decouple it with some you know, third-party vendor, some dependency in the future, do you go in and, and make it very closely coupled, clean, like really closely integrated or do you in fact knowing that oh okay well two years down the line this might change write your code in a different way there's no general answer to that question i think it's highly context dependent i think a great example of this would be uh kubernetes in the current day right kubernetes is amazingly popular like everybody's using it it's, it's sort of becoming a standard of its own and you kind of have a choice when you start using it you can either just kind of like keep your applications as they were before running it whenever they were before and just like make them run on Kubernetes, or you can like start leaning into Kubernetes, you know, build operators, like tap into the API, get all this information, but then you're tying yourself directly to Kubernetes. And it's kind of hard to figure out which one of those things you should do, because like Kubernetes has only been around since what, 2014? That's about seven years. So seven years from now, is, is Kubernetes still going to be a thing? And if you lean into it very heavily, then you're making the assertion that, yes, I think that it's still going to be a thing in seven years. I think we're going to benefit from having done this integration. If you don't, maybe you know, you're saying, well, maybe there's a possibility that we could hook into something else. But I think usually what winds up happening is that people don't make a decision either way and you wind up with something in the middle. And in this case, being in the middle is bad because that means you're still stuck with Kubernetes at the end of the day, but you can't actually move to something else because you're too tied into some of the things that Kubernetes is doing. But this also happens with cloud platforms. You know, people are like, oh, we want to be multi-cloud, or we want to be able to like switch away from AWS, or be cloud agnostic. And then you actually sit down and you're like, well, here are all the things that you're doing that make it so that it's actually going to be a giant pain to you know lift and shift to somewhere else, as they say. So I think it's like one of those things where you have to gather as much information as you can and then make a decision in the moment that makes the most amount of sense. 
and then realize you've made that decision, kind of more or less live with it. And then realize that at some point in the future, when you have more information, that you should come back and potentially revisit that situation. So if you're building something today, I would say, you know, if you're already using Kubernetes, like lean all the way in, like use operators, use all these great features, because that will make your life a bit easier. It'll make your current way of operating a bit easier. But just remember that someday down the road, maybe four or five years from now, those decisions you made won't be making as much sense. So you got to like continually evaluate and reevaluate that decision that you made, which I think is kind of the theme that we've had this whole time around just like, you have to bring in the requirements, you have to bring in the information, you have to gather all of that stuff. And on that, I kind of want to like raise the prospect of build versus buy outside of just the code realm and kind of bring it to our, our process and project management, you know, ethos and the things that we do. Because, you know, as we have been saying, we have to gather all of this information. We have to evaluate. We have to track time. We have to do all of this. In my experience, I've very rarely seen people make an explicit build versus buy decision around this. It usually starts out as a buy. You know, someone's like, okay, we're going to do agile. We're going to do scrum. We're going to do X, Y, or Z. And we're going to use these methodologies. And then it morphs into some sort of built thing that doesn't really look as much like the thing you started with. And new people come in and they're like, well, this isn't how I did, you know, X, Y, Z, Agile, whatever at my last place. So it seems like quite a mess. So I'd like to hear uh, your opinions on, do you perceive this as a problem as well? And where do you fall maybe on like how we can start resolving this or at least making it easier for people to, you know, make an explicit build versus buy decision around this stuff? I'll I'll defer to Angelica on that one (laughs) because she's, you know, master product manager and all that stuff. Oh gosh, that's a title that I would love to one day be worthy of. I mean, in terms of, honestly, I, I would maybe hope to understand exactly where, where your viewpoint is coming from, Chris, in terms of like you take a uh, methodology of project management, a, a way of working, and then it morphs into something that may not be a copy paste of what everyone else, other companies are doing. I mean, I personally see that less of a mess, but more of a um, molding it to a shape that fits your team. I will say like my team, yes, we will, you know, practice agile practices. We do, you know, two-week sprints. On the surface, yes, we follow that kind of boilerplate. This is how agile teams work. But within that, we have nuances. We have different ways of doing things, different ways of structuring our meetings. We allow flexibility to mold that kind of template and make it into something that works better for us. Yes, I would say I have seen and heard of places where by kind of throwing out the rule book and kind of adding too much flexibility around the process has had got has kind of into a bit of a mess but I feel like when it comes to how you project manage and how you run a team I feel strongly that you should have the flexibility to break the rules sometimes as long as it's discussed with the team and it's not like one person has a different understanding than another. Management and management tooling is one of those things where it's so soft and nebulous. It's not like an engineering discipline where, where you know you measure and you cut and you come out with a precise thing. It's way too malleable for that, right? So that goes for practices such as you know agile, capital A agile. I kind of find that to be a joke these days. That's that's just that lost its way in my opinion. But to have an agile team, lowercase a, or to have an agile team, right? To be able to sort of react to change because. In a business, change happens all the time, right? So you want your engineering team to be able to react to certain things. So that that's what you want. And that agility must come with 
flexibility. It's kind of prerequisite that you have to have enough flexibility in how you do things, be it in tooling and process. And sort of if you want to have, you know, stand ups or not, whatever, you know, everybody's doing these days. Um, if you want to have it remotely, you know, people just write in uh, on Slack, check in on Slack. If you want to do that, that's fine too. Whatever works for the team you're managing right now, whatever works for the team and the communication lines that you want to keep open, whatever works for that team, I think that's what you want to do. So I have a, a tremendous amount of respect for scrum masters and project managers, product managers, because they have to sort of deal with that amorphous sort of thing. And this is something that requires a lot of sort of EQ basically to, to know what works well in a given environment, because, you know, from one job to the next, from one department to the next, from one team to the next, right? You're going to find different things at work. And even you as, a, as an individual contributor that joins the team, whatever worked for you personally in the previous team may not work for you in this one, right? So you might find, okay, uh, most people do things this way here. It's not my favorite. I, we didn't like it either. Um, you know, we didn't like this particular way in the previous team, so we did it differently. But now everybody ha seems to, to like this one. So I guess I'm going to have to put myself in the backseat for a little bit and just see how this team operates, right? So these kinds of things, they're not cut and dry decisions, right? So you, sometimes you have to experience a little bit of discomfort for the betterment of the whole team, for the velocity of the whole team, as opposed to just your own preferences and things like that. So yeah, that's a very mushy subject. And, and I wish there was more cut and dry solutions to that. But yeah, this is where sort of experience and empathy and, and sort of having that sort of a, that EQ is, is really going to help you do well in those environments. But I would also say that that flexibility only works if there is a shared understanding of that baseline. What is like agile process? Like what is the purpose of a retro? What is the purpose of a standup? I feel like making sure that every member of your team, if you do choose to have that kind of agile as opposed to waterfall process or whatever it might be, making sure every new member, every current member really understands the baseline principles of that working style so that you can have informed conversations about where you're going to implement this flexibility, where you're going to change things up. Because I think I've had this, you know, I join a new team and I'm not familiar with their working style, even just like the boilerplate of what that even means as a process. I'm not going to be able to really work in whatever this new flexible model they developed, but nor am I going to be able to have informed conversations if something isn't working for me. Because if I don't really understand the purpose of, you know, X, Y, Z part of the process, then I'm not going to be able to speak to how do we change that? How do we improve this? So I think that in these scenarios, I think there is a need for that boilerplate. I'm just trying to think through if there was no working style, no methodology to follow at all. And you're kind of just going in, oh, let's just make up a way of working as a team. I don't know. It just fills me with anxiety. I'm like, I like that there's a structure that I can then play with. I guess in a way... I don't think we would ever just not have anything, but I wonder if it's sort of like the requirements of like sitting down and figuring out instead of just saying, okay, we're going to do agile, like starting from that perspective, how do we want to work? What do we want to do? Like, that seems like the thing that perhaps we should be buying instead of the like more prescriptive capital A agile methodology and all of the things, the sprints, the retros, the all of these other words about moving very fast uh, that we tend to bucket together. It feels like we do that kind of work we've suggested so far in the episode of doing up front, that requirements gathering, that like evaluation. It feels like the current way we do things is we do it after the fact, right? We do it, you know, we start off with some structure and then we're like, okay, well, we know that we've modified this almost every place we've been. We're going to start with this and then bumble around for a bit and then our team will kind of gel and we'll figure it out and we'll go through that process. 
when you have a new member of your team, you absolutely should do like team norms and go through the process, reevaluate, make sure they understand the current process, but also they're empowered to speak up and say like, oh, I did it differently at this other company. Would you be open to trying it? Which is a key thing here. Like you have to be open as a team to trying these new things. Like maybe we'll do, you know, a waterfall for a month. We'll try it out. I would say though, just like a slight logistical one is on the product side, <laughs> I love the fact that the whole company operates in one working style because if I am reliant on X team who does two-week sprints that are aligned with our two-week sprints in terms of dates, then I know who to be like, hey, you need to get this ticket in this sprint. And then I know that we can then take this ticket in this next sprint. So I like that I know and that everyone I'm speaking to across the company will understand that baseline structure and bluntly like deliverable at end of each sprint structure so that I can track through and follow up with people and make sure that when you're doing cross teamwork, which most of the time you are, you don't have to faff about as much with like, oh, well, we're doing a waterfall for the next 12 weeks. And it focuses the project planning more in my brain. <laughs> What's up, shippers? This episode is brought to you by Equinix Metal. If you want the choice and control of hardware with low overhead and the developer experience of the cloud, you need to check out Equinix Metal. Deploy in minutes across 18 global locations from Silicon Valley to Sydney. Visit metal.equinix.com slash just add metal and receive $100 in credit to play with. Again, metal.equinix.com slash just add metal. So this kind of guides us in a really nice direction that I want to go as well around, I guess, in between. So not just like a, a code, but not just a, you know, more soft slash social skills thing, but like, are we buying at the right level? And I uh, have the example of something like, you know, we have these standards, we have TCP, HTTP, these very old things that have lasted, you know, 30, 50 plus years with relatively small amounts of change when you consider it. Like HTTP, we're just getting to HTTP 3 and it's compatible with all the other versions of HTTP. And it, it's ubiquitous, it's used everywhere. And there's, you know, implementations of it that you can buy. But if you decide to swap out that implementation with something else, then there's not a problem. And I think that would also kind of map onto what you were just talking about, Angelica, where it's like, well, does it really matter how the team's operating or does it matter hey, I can say that this ticket's going to get done by this point in time and I can just come plug that in. So I guess my question around this is, should we be looking a little bit more at standards as a way of buying things instead of just looking at the code or looking at a particular, you know, esoteric implementation of something? You have to give us both some time to think that through. That's, very, that's really interesting. <laughs> what do you think, Chris? I think from a maintenance perspective, a maintenance side of things. This is an area where it absolutely makes sense to really lean heavily into this idea of standardization and importantly, open standards. I think that there is a rather large amount of upfront cost though, because you know standards, you take a lot of time to develop. You have to be very careful. You have to be able to think and project into the future in a way that people just really aren't used to. Like I think gRPC is a good example of this, right? Like gRPC is real nice, write a protobuf file, you write some APIs, real easy to get started. 
But almost every place I've been, GRPC becomes this kind of mess where like every time you want to do something, every time you want to change something, you're adding just more new methods and there's not a lot of good documentation infrastructure around it. So you got to build that up on your own or, you know, you just have this, you know, human documentation system where you just go ask people. And when I look at HTTP, I see a system that's, you know, you don't care about the version of Facebook or the version of Google that you land on when you navigate to that website. You don't care about any of those things that, you know, we have to care about when it comes to APIs. And the whole system just works. And there's a beauty to that because you can can kind of swap things in where you'd like, right? You don't have to use a particular thing. You can experiment, you can try new things, you can develop new things. And that is, in my experience, extremely difficult to do with bot solutions, especially when it comes to SaaS solutions. I think uh, a lot of SaaS products have this incentive to make it hard for you to move away from them and make it hard to interoperate with other solutions. And we, we do have some standards around things that people offer as SaaS products, but those never feel as robust as something like HTTP or something as robust as TCP. And I feel like there's another side to this as well. You know, gRPC is built on top of HTTP2. A lot of these sort of GraphQL is also built on top of HTTP. But it's always struck me that there's these things that we build on top of them that are this buy model, right? The thing you get with gRPC is a bunch of code. You don't have to go implement something yourself. But it kind of breaks the model as well. You know, gRPC is not just HTTP. You can't do a lot of the things you can do in just regular HTTP with gRPC. It's, just not, it's not the same amount of flexibility. So I kind of think from that perspective, it's like I would like us to be able to buy more standards. I would like us to be able to like just use HTTP by default and then layer on the stuff that we want after the fact, knowing that we'll be able to change and modify it over time. I'll give you an example from a very real and relevant lived experience for me right now on some stuff I'm working on. Open telemetry, right? This is sort of the big standard that sort of brings together open census, open tracing. If you looked at anything monitoring, tracing, observability over the last couple of years, you probably no doubt have run into open telemetry. And even if you haven't, you probably heard somebody who's talking about open telemetry or something, right? So you have the open census crowd who are trying to set up a standard, right? And you have the, um, the open tracing crowd who also had similar ideas. And thankfully, we've sort of netted on, okay, open telemetry being sort of the standard that we all want to embrace. And that's the, sort of the glorious future that we're building right now. But that project is still sort of really in its infancy. But a lot of companies are, are making big bets. The big giants like, you know, AWS and big vendors in the monitoring space, you know, the new relics of the world. Uh, if you just search observability and open telemetry, you'll see things from Datadog, from new relic, from all these other you know, players. Everybody sees sort of that writing on the wall, so to speak, right? It says, okay, up to this point, we've always had our own you know, formats for transmission data to our systems for encoding and packing, whatever it is. Like everybody's got their own thing, right? Which is efficient for their environment and whatever it is. You know, they provide their own SDKs, their own tooling, everything else. And all of a sudden, here comes open telemetry trying to establish, you know, like the one way, right, to do things. And now everybody's trying to create, you know, plugins that basically say, hey, yes, we'll accept open telemetry formatted, you know, um, traces and metrics and things. But there's so much pain to get here. Something like HTTP and TCP, like these are fundamental core things that really, even if you're a laggard, right, to use a term from the adoption curve, whatever it is, even if, if you're a skeptic or even if you don't want to use it, the moment you get on the web, well, you're kind of using it. So it's kind of fundamental to everything else. At some point, I think open telemetry is going to be one of those things where right now it's the tech enthusiast's 
it's the it's the early adopters, it's the people who see that great future, right? That are sort of saying, hey, this is a standard we see. It's coming. Let's jump in, and you're paying that price. So, to your point, Chris, I can see that standard, but right now, because of the kinds of projects I'm working on for my employer, I'm feeling every step of that pain because a lot of the things we're doing right involves that standard that sort of new hotness right that new standard that, that everybody's trying to work towards right and we are an innovative company we're headed a curve in that way so you know we're making that investment i'm feeling that pain right the, the changes to the sdk to the apis and changes to the concept the constructs you know i work sensitively with the open telemetry go sdk and library so whenever there's a change there like i'm feeling that pain and i have to go to all the projects that are already using our stuff internally and, and having to update those things, right? Because we want to help those teams embrace, right? That standard, you know, for the future of our platform, of the company and things like that. So we, we're, we're paying that price. So again, it is a price that we deliberately chose to pay. And that's the major distinction here. We saw that what was coming and said, okay, are we willing to make that investment? And we literally, we had to go make a case for adopting a standard for adopting, you know, vendors that support that standard, right? And sort of basically a domino, right? To basically to fall, everything to fall into place for somebody to sign off, say, yep, we are going to stop doing X. We're not going to start doing Y, right? But we went with both eyes open, right? We said, okay, this is the cost. This is what it's going to take. It's going to take a team of N people over a period of Y time to accomplish result X. We went in with all eyes open, right? So it's not a surprise, the cost of that adoption is not a surprise to our leadership team, right? And to the people above them, right? So that's the thing. That's really where, for me, it's always gonna come down to, do we all have a shared expectation of how this is going to roll out or how we'd like it to unfold, right? Do we have a shared expectation? Because that way, the accountants is not surprised when I show up with a $2 million AWS bill, right? Or the leadership team is not surprised when I make a decision you know, technology-wise that's going to impact you know, teams across the platform. That way, there's no surprise as to what's coming, why it's coming, why we decided to do what we're doing, right? Nobody's surprised, right? As long as everybody's on the same page as what we're trying to accomplish, I can go in the weeds, right, and, and, and go figure out the how. But the why we're doing it, what are the major steps we're going to take to get there? As long as everybody's on that same page. I think piggybacking off of the standards is absolutely the right thing to do. You just got to know that like, you're paying that cost, and that's fine. That was great. Love that. But and I think that's a perfect way to uh, transition into the final segment here of unpopular mm. opinions. I actually think you should probably leave. Right. Uh, Angelica, do you have an unpopular opinion? I have many. Oh, <laughs> she can't be prepared. <laughs> no, I don't. I will only share one. No, I think my unpopular opinion may well just not be that unpopular. But given that recently, shameless plug, I listened to the opinion box being opened and the list of the most unpopular and one of the most was around chocolate. I'm going to make mm. mine also food themed. My unpopular opinion is that we should switch the foods that we eat for meals and have dinner food for breakfast and have breakfast food for dinner. Like I want to wake up and have a lovely bowl of pasta and I want to go to sleep having eaten a lovely bowl of granola. Okay. I mean, dinner for breakfast or breakfast for dinner is a thing. I don't know if dinner for breakfast is a thing, but 
I always wake up absolutely ravenous and I'm just like, I want a big meal. <laughs> Whereas at night, I'm like, why am I eating lots of food at dinner, like to get to sleep? I don't need energy to sleep. I need energy for my day. So just in general, it's completely made up biologically, which is what is made up because it's not probably scientifically accurate. I need more energy for the whole day. So why don't I eat like my big meal in the morning? Yeah, you're not wrong. I mean, there's even a saying, right? Breakfast like a king, lunch uh, like a prince, dinner like a pauper, right? That's, that's yes. whoever came up with that. That's that's a thing, right? Although I'm having a hard time thinking about I wake up in the morning and I go have a ribeye with potatoes and uh, uh, mashed potatoes and, and gravy. <laughs> I feel like that's the food that's going to put you back to sleep. Like <laughs> Start your day with a nice glass of wine with your steak. Now we're getting into problematic territory. <laughs> Steak and eggs is a thing, though. Like, it is. I'll meet you halfway. How about brunch? I can do brunch. I could have dinner-like things. At if I could just snack all day on, like, nuts <laughs> and just have, like, the biggest brunch ever every day, that would be ideal. The thing is, though, brunch is like an event. Like, I want to, like, get dolled up. I want to like, go out and have brunch. I want it to be a whole occasion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you can just do, like, a continual meal. Just always have food available and just snack. Brunch is also that like excuse to like drink in the morning but not feel bad about it. So have a mimosa. Yeah. Next go time. We'll do go time brunch at 3 p.m. EST. <laughs> Angelica's like, yeah, I want to eat throughout the day. You're like, yeah, your metabolism hasn't, hasn't gone away yet, has it? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm struggling to keep mine under control. Oh, my goodness. Oof. All right, Johnny, do you have an unpopular opinion? I think control is overrated. What we've been discussing, right, around sort of a build versus buy. And I think Angelica mentioned something about, you know, basically the control that you might want to have because perhaps a vendor is not speedy enough with, with updates or whatever, or responsive enough, or, or perhaps, you know, you have a cloud hosting provider that you don't want to be locked into and things like that, right? So you exercise your control by basically building abstractions on top of things and creating a separation of concern, or rather a separation between you and really any third-party dependency. That way, if you want to move it, you can just have one surface area to, to re-engineer and not your whole product, right? And I think that's fine. Those are luxuries that you have as a profitable company with lots of uh, um, engineering resources and talent and, and cash, right? You want to throw that. You want to do multi-cloud. If you're a startup starting out, unless your business is in multi-cloud, that you're offering something that is supposed to be multi-cloud, you have no business trying to do multi-cloud as a startup company. You should pick something. You know, I'm biased. I'll say start with Heroku. But uh, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll abstract a lot of things away from you. If the abstraction is what you're looking for, you can pick Heroku. That's fine. If you want to go pick a cloud vendor, GCP, Azure, you know, uh, AWS, whatever, pick one and focus on making money. It's kind of give yourself a break, right? People talking about control and you don't want to be locked in a lot of stuff. That's fine. Personally, I think that's a luxury, something that you get to sort of experience eventually at some point. Yes, there are software and packages and open source tooling, things that are these days, right, that make it easier to start out that way. But man, if startup life is not sexy as people make it out to be, it is a grind. You are struggling to make the next dollar. If you have VC money, they want their money in multiples, you know, in a certain amount of time. I mean, that sexiness we, we attribute to startup life and all the things and the technologies, you know, selections as a result of it. And, you know, talking about oh, multi-cloud, this and like, that's all industry buzz, you know, focus on making money. And I think personally, one of the ways you narrow that focus is to pick a cloud vendor, build 
on that vendor, right? Integrate tightly if you must, right? Get to profitability, right? And then if you want to create abstractions after you have money in the bank, go crazy, right? But I think control is overrated in that sense. I don't disagree with you there. I think um, people want the sense of control. They want this sense of freedom, this ability to jump to a new cloud, even though it's like, Practically, they're probably never going to do that. They they want to know that they could if they wanted to. Even they very much know that they are never going to want to. <laughs> right, exactly. So it's that like sense of control in a way. I think that point you had about startups is very accurate as well. I think people they go into a startup and they're like, this is going to be fun. And it's like, <laughs> you're taking out like this nice like 0% interest loan and you're like buying a giant house or something. But it's like, no, those payments are going to come due each month. And if you get behind on those interest payments, it's going to take you a long time. And I feel like that's what happens. You know, eventually a company you know, gets acquired or there's some exit that happens. And then you look around and you're like, wow, there's a lot of stuff that like we thought we were doing this in such a great way. But like all we were doing was just like paying off our old loans with new loans. And it's like all of this is now caught up to us. And we have to actually sit down and figure out how to like retool this so that we can actually move forward. And I just think like the hours people work at startups is a lot more than what people think. And it, it's a fun experience, I, I think, for people that are young and really into what they do. But I think it, it has a number of downsides as well. And it's usually fun for the people who are sort of along for the ride. And to some degree, it can be fun for the founders, too, like in retrospect, like big picture kind of thing. But man, I've had to go without pay in order to pay my people. Mm. Think about that for a second. Yeah. I've had to not pay, delay my rent, not pay for certain things, not be able to afford certain things, right? In order to pay the people that work for me, right? So you kind of have to sort of uh, like that whole, you know, sexiness we attribute to startup life and, you know, showing up in Inc. Magazine and all that stuff. Yeah. We ought to have another episode on, on that because, you know, I'm, that's, I'm, I'm feeling a soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel like that could fit really nicely in with this maintenance series of just like maintaining our lives, maintaining ourselves, maintaining our industry. It's like one of the things that we'll hopefully be able to put an episode together is even just like the way we speak about things. You know, I kind of brought it up a little bit earlier, but you know, the sprints, the velocity, the hackathons, it's like our whole I started saying to some of my friends, it's like, you know, we develop software as a series of three-day hackathons packaged into two-week sprints. Like, everything mm -hmm. is always like, we got to solve this right now. We got to build this thing right now. We got to have this real quick. And part of the reason I want to do this series is because it's like, but there's a long cost to a lot of this. Like, how many times have, have we come into a company and it's like, oh, man, we got to scrap this entire code base. And it's like, how many human years have been put into building this thing. And now you're just like, no, nah, we're just going to toss it out. We're going to try again. And then three years later, four or five, six years later, it's like got to do the whole thing again. And it's like we continually do that. But then there are these other projects. Like I bring up HTTP and TCP for a reason. It's like these are things where it's like we managed to get it right, right? It's like mm -hmm. it's not perfect. HTTP, by no means, not perfect. Neither is HTML, nor is CSS, nor is TCP. Right. They're all, they all have their warts. They all have their problematic areas. But they have remained largely unchanged. And it's like this phenomena. If you look at everything else and it's like 10 years ago, we certainly weren't using Kubernetes because it didn't exist. So like in a 10-year span, we've completely changed the way that we run all of our software. And it's like we continually do and it can't change it in an incompatible way. And it's like, how much person time, how much knowledge time have we lost just from 
making all of these changes. How do we reconcile that? We are an industry that's always excited about the new and the shiny and the like, what can we do that is bigger and better than what we did yesterday? But rarely do people want to pay the long-term cost of that. As you said, with the standards, like building standards is a painful, long, slow process. But standards are how we actually work. Like this industry probably wouldn't look at anything like it does if we didn't have HTTP, if we didn't have TCP, if we didn't have HTML. Like people harp on, you know, HTML and CSS, but it's like, these are the things. Like HTML killed off basically every single competitor that's ever come up against it. You know, Flash, gone. Silverlight, gone. Java applets, (laughs) gone. Like everything that someone tried to propose against HTML, it like defeated soundly. It even had this, like, what, eight-year period where it just, like, went nowhere and we built up so much stuff where it's like, HTML5, let's go. So I think it's like we need to start having more of these conversations where we can tap into what is the long-term? How do we get to that long-term? Everybody wants to have HTTP. Everyone wants to have this nice, ubiquitous thing. It's so common, you don't even think about it. And it's so extendable and so robust that, you know, I'm still marveled at the HTTP 1.1 to 2 to 3 transition that we're going in and how, you know, we talk about versioning, especially a lot in the Go community right now. And it's like, we have three versions of something that's 30 years old that are all compatible with each other and have an interface that's so cleanly designed that you don't even have to know which of these three you're using because all of the pieces just fit together. And I'm like, how do we do more of that? Because that's where we really, you know, push our industry for. That's real innovation. Like I think HTTP is stellar innovation, and I want us to do more of that. And it's boring. Yeah, if I may say so. Right. I think then the next sort of a episode in the series, I think we should, although we have touched on Go a little bit throughout this episode, but I think I'd like to see us talk about Go in like this context, right? About Go being really like boring technology that I think is is here for the long term. And yes, I think we're all biased on this show. This is Go time <laughs> after all. But I think there's merits, right, uh, to Go's no flash, no non-exciting features, I guess, and, and how that plays into really the decisions you make as a startup founder or as a big company technology executive, you know, to pick the technology. I think there's a lot of room right there to explore. And I'd really like us to sort of a center on Go really in that context, at least the next time we bring this up. Yeah, there was a section on Go that we ran out of time for that was talking about <laughs> libraries and maintenance. But I think that could also just be, you know, open source and Go open yep. source maintenance can be its own entire episode, I think. Indeed. As well, there's a lot to talk about there. So yeah, this is why I'm like, we need a series on this because it's. Uh, I think it's a really important topic. Thank you for joining me, Johnny and Angelica. I feel like this was a really great conversation and I'm definitely looking forward to the uh, next episode in this series. Awesome, it was a pleasure. The series continues next week when Chris and Johnny are joined by Sam Boyer and Ian Lopshire to discuss building actually maintainable software, if it even exists. Rodents of unusual size? I don't think they exist. Go Time is produced by Jared Santo, that's me, with music by Breakmaster Cylinder, that's not me. Shout out to our awesome sponsors, Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linode. You can also directly support the show by signing up for Changelog++. It's our membership program that gets you closer to the metal, makes the ads disappear, and helps ensure GoTime production continues into the future. Check it out at changelog.com slash plus plus. That's all for now. We'll talk to you next time on GoTime. Thank you.
now a moment from Ship It episode 13. It's Gerhard Lazou talking YAML. And I also would like to add that my relationship with YAML went through different cycles. It's a definitely <laughs> love-hate sort of thing. Yeah. I have to say that. But I think my biggest distaste from abusing YAML came from seeing it being used in CloudFormation, where we literally do increment like an INC. Can you imagine the string INC put in a list? And then you had two numbers, which had to be incremented. A variable would be generated out of that. So basically, you'd program in YAML, which I think was abhorrent. You should never do that. I remember that moment, <laughs> and I think I will remember it till the end of my days. That was like horrible. Like, why would you do that? Yeah. If you want to do that, then just use a programming language, right? Like TypeScript. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. I remember that moment. So I'm really glad that you went down this path, because if you do have to do that, do any sort of templating, any sort of like, you know, smart logic, don't do it in YAML, please. It's just horrible. Yeah.